The four A's is dedicated to supporting agencies and creative companies through leadership and community for our industry. We're passionate supporters of the work small agencies do across America and the role of the Small Agency Planner Parlay in helping strategists get fueled on creativity, commerce, and culture, all moving strategy and the industry forward. For more information on the many benefits of being a 4A's member, try aaaa.org to find out how our industry authority can be there for you. And now, the Planner Parlay. Welcome to Planner Parlay, a show where we come together under a flag of truce to talk about small agency planning. In this week's episode, our panel shares, and shares about sharing, as they let us behind the scenes of agency leadership and creating culture. They define the strategy wallow pit, provide tips on how to stay out of it, and instead teach us ways to shoot from the heart, be playful, and dare to be mischievous. Join our guests, Mark Pollard, Strategy CEO at Mighty Jungle in New York City, Julian Cole, Strategy Consultant joining from Melbourne, Australia, and of course, John Roberts, CSO of Truth Collective in Rochester, New York, as they reveal new ways of looking at the things you look at all the time and what it means for small agencies. Pull up a chair and listen in. So uh, here we are today, another episode of Planner Parlay on the podcast, uh, and I'm thrilled to be able to gather today both Mark Pollard and Julian Cole to help share with us some learnings and thoughts about a topic that's come up time and time again in our parlays of understanding the value of strategy within an agency and what kind of culture and leadership in the agency helps nurture that. So we'll start there and see where we go. So why don't we start with you guys, why don't you give us a, a one-minute overview of your role, as wild and diverse as it is, and also, what do you love doing and why? Let's start with you, Mark. Well, I guess I'm understanding this stuff a little bit differently the more I do it, and I see the connections back to my days as a child and as a teenager and as someone who used to make a rap magazine. The way I talk to myself about what I do is trying to help people who think for a living live and that operates deeper and in a darker way than just doing strategy or even just training strategy. But, you know, essentially I kind of exist in this dark uh, overthinking world and I, I try to not just get stuck there but to do useful things with it and it happens to be through the world of strategy right now. Awesome. How about you, Julian? Uh, so I would say um, I'm a strategy consultant helping brands and also kind of running workshops uh, with Mark in how to do strategy. I came up through uh, communications planning and so was in agencies in Australia and then moved to New York and headed up the communications planning department at both BBH and BBDO. And then in the last year, I've gone out um, consulting by myself and have, yeah, just finished my first year there helping uh, brands like Facebook, Uber, Disney, and then also a number of agencies work out how to create great integrated marketing campaigns. Fantastic. And guys, but I think about both of your, your long and varied experiences, both within agency, large, small, and working directly with clients, and actually helping coach and learn with other agencies. I want to talk about the topic that, as I mentioned at the beginning, this notion around um, understanding a, a validation of the value of strategy within agencies. And it's been a recurring theme in the um, surveys and discussions I've led within parlays over the last couple of years of agency strategists, particularly small agency strategists, which is where kind of my heartland is, not feeling as though strategy or their work is valued within an organization. We all love and cherish the, the flip side, 
positive aspect. But I want to talk a little bit more and dig in that. Um, what's your perspective on that? Is that something that you've seen in your experiences? Uh, for me, definitely. Uh, I think that every day you have to kind of prove yourself as a strategist and you're, um, the reason you're at the table. And I think um, it's on us to really work out how to build that case and, and make the story. I kind of came to BBDO and had to really prove communications planning because it was a new discipline within the planning department. And I think the way that I went about that was really, I tried to start small and get some wins on the board and then kind of build momentum from there. And I think that's what we've got to do. We've got to find, look at what have we done in the last 12 months where we can point and say, our fingerprints are on that campaign. And if we want this for the rest of the agency, then we need strategy as central to it. And I think sometimes we forget that. We get caught up in the day-to-day -day and we don't build that case for ourselves and the discipline. That's a really great way of thinking about it, Julian. Sorry, Mark. Um, how about your perspective? Yeah, it's, it's a very abstract thing because it, it's thinking. And the thinking needs to lead to action, but because it's also thinking that needs to affect a department if you're in a more traditional agency setup where there's a creative department, your thinking's got to get through so many people to even get out into public. And so many things can happen with that thinking that, in a, in a sense, rightly so, people should judge what kind of value you bring to the table. I get people's entire life cycle of wanting to become a strategist, getting a first junior strategy job as the only strategist in a small agency in somewhere in, in the US. Uh, then they might get like a strategy director role. They, I know someone who's just recently got a job as uh, the first head of head of strategy in an agency on an island just off the US. And it's the first time they've ever had a strategy department. And at the same time, I get the messages where someone just lost a job, like literally, literally today, because an agency put them in, thought they wanted strategy, didn't know what to do with it, and now they've decided to sell stuff that's easier to sell. So I do think there's a huge amount of pressure on people. It's it's a very abstract art. Uh, I call it an art, but it's. Uh, it's an amazing career and I just think it needs a few more people around it who don't just cherry pick it for its eccentricities, but business leaders who really want it to work and who advocate for it top down and don't just sort of pit it against other strategists and other agencies they're competing with or pit it against their own departments. I see a lot of that behavior too, which is not healthy. There's this conundrum for me, right? When we think about this discussion about the, the value of strategy. There's the abstract mark, as you well pointed out, and Julian talking about proving yourself every day in the work that we do. There's also the concrete of the leadership, however we want to define it with an agency, has made a commercial decision to hire and bring in people, usually quite valuable people, and yet they don't seem to understand, I've heard about, how to, how to create a culture and also how to value the output. Two slightly different things. Are you seeing the same thing? And why do you think that happens? It depends who's hiring. So if you get if you get someone who's running an agency who comes from a creative background, a strategist or a group of strategists will threaten them because not only are they the boss of the company, they're the boss of the ideas, and they can mm -hmm. really struggle to uh, to give up ground to allow other people to come in and to, to basically think because that's what they think they are, and then they can go through this cycle of well. I'm the creative and I'm the strategist. Why did I hire strategy people? I don't know what to do. And in the meantime, the strategists are like, no one appreciates us, no one supports us. So there's that. Then you get uh, more of that business mind that's concrete, action-oriented, wants to execute, wants to build a big business. And they've been able to build a big business. Or, for, you know, 
as far as a small business goes, without a strategist. A strategist comes in, uh, a strategist asks questions, they can slow things down. Sometimes they do say the wrong thing and they, they need to say the wrong thing. And so that can kind of get in the way of this execution and, and, and profit rush as well. So, that, so that there are different dynamics around it. I think the only way through is if you're going to bring in strategists, it has to be a default discipline. It needs advocacy at the top. It needs to be default in the systems. People need to be thinking, uh, let's say, let's call it 10%. Every project that comes in, that and you could have a triage system so that not all projects need strategy, but if they do, at least 10% of the, the money and time should go to strategy activities, whether or not a strategist is on them. And operations people can help all that stuff happen. Without those three or four things there, a strategist will just flail by themselves. Yeah. It's it's a difficult conundrum to throw somebody into. Yeah, I think there's, a, there's some really good points there that I've, I've learned personally in terms of building strategy practice within agencies as well as being one. And I want to come back to a couple of those points you were saying, but Julian, how is your thought on that? Yeah, I guess my point is is that I think definitely different people are bringing it in, but I think there becomes like a grace period where you need that person to be an advocate for you for like the first 90 days. And I think, I think generally they are because they've advocated that we need this to the rest of the senior leadership. But then it really falls on the strategist to prove their worth and work out how that actually exists. So there's two things I think you need to do there. The first is you need to create like artifacts that they will see come up time and time again. So for me at BBDO, I, I can only speak to my own experience, but I know this is different mm -hmm. in all, all different places. We created two documents that would always turn up in every client presentation, which was a comms framework and a blueprint, which was like a communication architecture. And creating that consistent language, people understood what they were getting, what output they were getting. And that's the important thing. You need to make sure strategy has clear outputs. Even though a lot of the job is done in the inputs and you know it's done behind the scenes, you need some of those key outputs that they can sell through to their client to show, hey, this is the value they're making. The second area is you need to understand how to make the uh, senior leadership be able to work on your side and how they can help advocate. So an example I'll give you is we had a, a project at BBDO which was um, called Project Unbreaker. And now this every every time I bring a technology example, they always age really badly. Uh, but uh, this was around the time that Facebook uh, had was doing a big push into video, and um, a lot of uh, advertisers were just taking their TV commercial and putting it on Facebook. And we were saying actually you need to thumb break the content. You need to stop people's thumbs in the feed. And the way you do that is you need to cut and edit a clip in a different way. And so I talked to senior leadership and said, hey, the data says this, this is how we need to change the way we create our advertising. And this is how we need to edit. And we need to make sure every client's doing this. Now to the CEO, I said, and the CCO, I was like, I need your support here to make this happen. And what I want you to do is I want you to, to be on you in six months to check that all the brands are doing this. And if they're not, then the creative director and the account lead need to speak to you about why they didn't do that. And so that gave them a really clear understanding of something that they could do to help strategy, and in this case, comms planning, get into the organization. And I think making those pieces 
where they're invested and they've got a role in helping you succeed is kind of key to me because they don't know how to do this and it's really on you to work out what are those key pieces that they can help advocate for you beyond the three months where they're just spruiking you and setting you up as best as possible. Also, uh, what, so what I love about the way that Julian approaches this, I mean, I think he also mentioned an idea that that was about making comms planning default and then managing by exception. So fully support that. But I, I think comms yep. planning is a potential gateway to strategy, broad, broadly speaking. I think one of the problems that's going on right now is everybody thinks they're a strategist. Whereas with comms planning, you can immediately talk to many stakeholders about what they really, really care about, which is money and performance. So to a creative team, comms planning can help them make uh, work that makes more sense in, in the right kinds of channels. So hopefully they get a better opportunity to get work into their portfolio and potentially earn more money because of more effective work. A client who's not going to want to spend money in the right way and, and not just bang all this money into an efficiency play where they could complaining could help their ideas turn up in the world in a more effective, more resonant way. Uh, and, and then as far as uh, leaders who might see themselves as a strategist or creative, it's going to grow their business. And so I, I kind of think as much as I've spent a little bit of time around complaining, but more around uh, well, user experience and then brand strategy and, and creative briefs, I think comms planning uh, for this era is definitely a very useful gateway to get into a, a broader strategic remit. Mark, if, if you were to make brand strategy more commercial tomorrow, what would you do? In America, I think what's interesting is that because brands existential work, that the bigger budgets, right? Because part of what your question there is, is like, how do you, how do you make money? Where is the money? I, my, my hunch is that in the US, it's trying to work out how to help people who are at the sea level work out why they personally exist and how their companies can exist in a way that's close to that. Now, that is a segment of people, but when you're working with that executive level, the budgets are very different to somebody who's just got to make five videos this this year or this quarter. So I think that's one way to, to make it more commercial. Um, I the, think the, the recent... The budgets are different. Yeah. Sorry, jumping in, just adding to that, Mark. I think, yes, we found the budgets are different. The perspective's different as well. There's... Yeah. Uh, there's, there's the gap of to overcome, but to help them understand the role of a brand to significantly be a distinctive business driver. And the, the five video portfolio marketing manager is a the role of a brand from a sense of uh, identity in some way. Mm. Yeah, and they're able to say hopefully yes to every, like all the other decisions that need to happen rather than Trying to trying to write a creative brief that sits against a marketing brief, against a media agency's brief, and you know, so a lot of people I work with are banging out so many briefs in a year. It's hard, like it's sort of just chipping away in this mine, and I think there are other mines to get into. So that's another thread, but I break your train of thought. You were talking about the role of brand at the C-suite level. I I was going to say, do you know what's really interesting? Because now this year, like consulting, I've gotten way more into brand strategy. Um, than in previous years where I was really concentrating on comms planning. And the one thing that I think is really clear is um, in ins insights. And the difference, when you can start explaining insights to people and showing the difference between like a good insight mm -hmm. and one that really like, you know, makes people feel seen, um, I think that is like something where people can see the tangible benefits of that. And I think that's like 
I'm really interested in like focusing on that at the moment because I think it's really exciting too. Like in Insight being a new, you know, I think Mark, this is your definition of it too. Um, a new way of looking at the same problem, like something you look at all the time and then getting yep. your whole cohort to see it in a completely new way that changes their opinion of the brand and the problem that they're dealing with. When you can show like CEOs and the business, you know, whoever leadership that and like make them feel something, I think that's like so powerful. And I really think that there's some value in that. And it's like uh, at the moment, what I'm trying to build is that, that like, great case to put towards um, senior leadership that anyone can kind of take and say, hey, this is what the job of the brand strategist is. We're not just writing briefs, but we're we're giving you a new point of view on the consumer that will shape them to their core. Um, I think that's there's something in there too. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, the other way I'd answer your question, because you're, you're doing it in a particular format, is people... Mm don't want to be excluded. They, there are huge teams. Decisions seem to be taking longer than ever, according to research I've read. And people are nervous that they're not going to be seen to be doing the work. And so doing brand strategy in groups, I think, is obviously a business model mm. many people are attracted to. I have mixed uh, mixed feelings about it. I like doing it, but also sometimes I find myself way more effective by doing a ton of interviews, sitting down and writing, and then working out how to do the workshopping. Other people are like, mm. you know what, we're just going to charge X thousands of dollars to do the workshopping. And that's just how it's going to be. And sometimes it's going to be good and sometimes it isn't, but that's going to be the business model. So I think the executive budget, uh, and I don't think about these things cynically because I usually revisit what how, what do I want to do in life? Like, how do I feel like I can actually contribute something meaningful? But if the executive budgets and how they can understand brands and then doing strategy together, I think uh, are two things for agencies to explore if they can get above and beyond the idea of just giving away their thinking for free. Yeah, and here's the thing, that, that giving away the thinking for free it actually comes down to, we talked a lot about the, the abstract role of, of integrating strategy. There's a concrete role of charging for it, which really helps focus the mind, right, With this, particularly within a small agency. There seems to be a thread in great perspectives from both of you that go across the board, but the thread for me seems to be coming back to, I think, where you started this, Julian, which is you know being re- fundamentally, keeping it really simple of where's the value you can add fast to demonstrate the role of strategy. So I found in the past, for example, uh, a creative champion is the value you can deliver is how can you help expand their potential for great work. The account lead is how can you actually introduce new revenue opportunities or new client opportunities? Hey, there's more that we could do than just purely answer the brief. There's more than what we could do about purely execute to a client demand. Is that what you've seen as well? Yeah, I I guess I've built comms planning off the key thing of selling more innovative work. Like that's all comms planning is doing. It's helping to sell more innovative work, upping the quality of the work that gets out. And I think, as you said, you tell that story in different ways to different groups. Like creatives, like the important thing, their livelihood is on winning creative awards. If you don't win a creative award for two years, your career is like a bust. So if you can understand that motivation and really help them win creative awards, that's going to be massive for them. For account people, they need to get, they need to have a satisfied client and also get the work through kind of on budget. So any ways you can like, also help in timings and like reduce the amount of like creative churn they're going to love as well and then clients want results and then also want want great work that they're proud of so you've got to work out how you tell that 
story to different the different parties and that's what I'm really interested in too. Cool. We've talked and there's a thousand I'm scribbling furiously as we go as a like a summary of like a, a font of tips and thoughts about how fundamentally any or all of these can be applied by any strategist but particularly thinking about within small agency how they can prove their value to actually then be appreciated for what they can bring. What can planners or strategists stop doing in your experience? For me, it's consumer journeys. I think consumer journeys are a waste of time. They are like a bit of strategy wank, really. They never actually touch the the work. And they're the easiest thing because a, a strategist feels like they need to be seen having an output and they're sometimes worried that they're not going to feel like they're having a, a role. And I think that's what we lean on. And a lot of the times, the first thing we do is do a consumer journey. And it takes so much time. And you might do it as a workshop with clients. And they might love it. But then when it gets to the actual work, it actually doesn't change the work. And it doesn't make a big impact. Eight times out of 10, I think when you're thinking in consumer journey, you can probably skip straight to a communications framework, which is what are the different messages we need to say? What are the barriers we're solving? I do think there are times, like saying that, there are some small amount of times where you should do a consumer journey, but we should not, that shouldn't be the default on any creative brief. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to start tearing all mine up and go back <laughs> into your into your Skillshare program again. But yeah. tell me more about that, Aleke, the, the journey. Are, are you, I'm assuming you're referring to both the functional mapping that we've all done, as well uh-huh. as the attitudinal mapping. Yeah, so yeah, both yeah. of them, when have you seen them actually you know show up and change the work in a significant way you know out of hundreds of times they never actually impact anything the other thing we do is like we wake make way too much work um in creative development and we seem to make the same three things every time and so i think the thing is is really working out early on in the process um what is the actual work that we need to make for this campaign and what are we like What's the one or two things we're striving or 10% that we're trying to change with this campaign and where does that um, exist? Because there's just so much creative wastage and creative churn that kind of demotivates the team. Yeah, it's funny, Julian, as you're saying this, I'm I'm going back through my whole list of mistakes I've made where the journey felt like a great idea, but actually when you look back, it it complified, didn't simplify. And you get to the point where you look at an execution and go, well, wait, is this media or channel supposed to be doing step a or step b because they both feel really similar they felt great when we were in workshop but now mm. we're looking at reality does that make sense yeah, yeah totally awesome yeah. so great stop mark sorry we went on a riff what, what do you think strategists and planners should stop doing in order to, to be able to demonstrate their value uh i think they should stop using expensive words but i have a second one because i think it's connected and i think it's like you got to take what you do seriously, but you don't have to take yourself so seriously all the time. I mean, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I do events, and I'm like, why is everybody so scared of each other that they're just frozen? Like, why is everyone taking this so seriously? Why are the decks that I'm looking at full of these big long words that you would never use outside of the deck, let alone outside of the room or the office of the building? What is that? Like, how? Do, why is this okay? It's not okay. And the thing is, if you can move through those two thoughts. I'm cheating the question here, but if you can move through those two thoughts, if you can love short, sharp words, if you can take yourself seriously enough, but really embrace the playfulness, the mischievous spirit that is what we do. We're, we're basically coming up with different ways to exist in the world for, for brands, for companies, for people. Let's 
it's quite rebellious, cheeky, mischievous work. If you can embrace that energy and have people hire you for that energy, uh, I think it's just better. I think it's better for you. Great perspective. I, to be honest, I've said for many a year, I'm a chief strategy officer and I get confused by strategy because it feels like a big wallow pit where anything that anyone's uncertain about or volume of opinion, they can throw it all in and we call it strategy. And I'm constantly trying to figure out what's the simplest way to get to stealing a Mark Pollardism and a formed opinion on how to win, right? And no matter how we frame it, but that, that balance between informed, it's, it's based on some real depth and rigor and, and passion for doing it right and better, but at the same time, it's still an opinion. Are you going to argue, how about arguing back with your, your own words, Mark? <laughs> no, I want you to talk more about wallow pit. What's that metaphor? I love that. Keep going. Expand on that, please, Sean. So, <laughs> so when we think about the worlds that we live in, and you guys you know from the work you do directly with client and workshops and the discussions, and Mark, you kicked off on this riff, which is that we use too many words and too long ways round trying to get to the root of what it's really about so the simpler we can make things the better okay the simpler the clearer we can get to it and my my wallow pit which i've just completely made up on the spur of this podcast this, this discussion would be it can be really comfortable for planners and for clients to wallow but it doesn't ultimately lead to better work mm -hmm. i totally agree the other one i was thinking about was everyone throwing their like two cents in the wallow pit was like the account people, when they've got an, uh, uh, you know, something that's not, they don't see in the client brief or they don't see in the creative work, they'll often throw it in the strategist wallow pit of just being like, <laughs> oh, you know, didn't the client, don't you think the client would want to see, you know, how to make, you know, the cocktails using our recipe? I don't think that's coming through in the work. What, what do you think? Throw it in. You know, do you think that should be in the brief? Throw it in, throw it in. And they're, they're just lumping you with all these messages and other things that they want to put in there. So, yeah, that's that's what I, when I was visualizing my wallow pit, I was seeing other people just chucking their two cents and their worries in there as well. But I love that. And I love the, the idea of wallow pit because it's an idea. It's bringing things together that don't usually belong together. And it's a great problem to solve. If strategy is being used as a wallow pit inside your agency, how do you solve that? So it's like, I love that. And that's, if you present using slides, the first slide could say the wallow pit. And that's all, and, and they're all the words that you need on that slide. And then you would do some research, you would have some other short, sharp words and work out how to solve it. So I, I look, I love that as an example of uh, what to do versus what not to do. You know, it's funny, you've just actually put into a, a presentation a workshop device, which I'm sure you guys do, right? When, particularly when we're thinking, Julian, you were talking about being more involved in brand strategy, where the the, the cluster wall, everyone walks in with with keywords that we all have the the quality list, okay, the authentic misnomer, and one of the things that I always want to do is is use a cluster wall to get them out early, mm. so everyone's had their say. Everyone said quality. Uh, our brand stands for quality. Okay, great. Post-it note, put it on the cluster wall, and the wallow pit is a is the equivalent of that wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would refuse to put those words up on the wall. But I identify with the need to get people flowing, maybe stream of consciousness, because often we bring things to workshops like that. We might feel very forced, and we bring this robotic language or these ideas, and we just hold on to them. And until we're addressed, until we get them out, we hold on to them. We won't let go. We won't indulge with any yeah, other yeah, kind yeah. of ideas or conversations. So you've got to get them out. Me, I don't put that stuff up on a wall anymore. I did when I was younger. Huh. 
But I reckon you have to put it up because they have to feel heard. Like you, you might, you know, you'd put it on, maybe you put it on the back wall and then you're not facing towards those words. But if you don't put that up, I feel like that's a massive misstep because they will feel like those words aren't heard and they'll keep trying to, you know, squeeze them in in other ways. So I feel like, I don't know, I'd, I'd put them up. No, I, I, I think it's high, it's, to me, it's highly coachable. And it's not like you walk into a room and go, hey, give me your words, I'll put them up. I mean, you set the tone, you have a bit of banter, obviously my accent, my sarcasm and my monotone are part of my shtick. And so I set the mm-hmm. scene and as soon as people give me the word, or I might say, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to give me one of five words like authenticity, quality, convenience, de- dependence, um, I don't know, whatever it is, right? And then I'm going to ask you some questions. And as you answer the questions, I'm going to put those words up on the wall and they're really exciting words. So it's not just like this me coming in going nah not gonna do it it's it's fun but but i reckon that might make people self-conscious to be honest i think if you said these we can't say these words then people will be double guessing themselves it's a challenge right because i think what we don't want to do is We've gone off on this great tangent, but I'm loving it. The how do we ensure that a workshop is used in this notion of the wallow pit of the brand strategy words uh, where people can contribute but don't think they're done. And so either loop can work. Personally, what I tend to do is I tend to say I want to get them out there and then we'll not immediately, but we'll start, we'll come back to them. They're on a sidewall. Julian, you talked about that. But I want uh, the people to come back and then start saying, okay, so who doesn't want to be? Name one brand that doesn't want to stand for quality in some yeah. aspect and allow people to, to deselect what they've put up to move them forward. Did you see the, um, the bland manifesto, the bland, uh, yeah. the bland brand guidelines? That was amazing. It's like all the words that you, you, you don't want. And that's, that to me is a great, great thing. It's kind of what you were saying already, Mark, with, hey, you're going to say these five words. Um, but it's like, oh, my God, yes, they are the words that everyone uses. So here's the thing, when I flip this round to the reason I honestly I started Parley was because as a as a strategist that's grown up primarily in small agencies and when I've been to Stratfest for years and years and years and working with the four A's, there was this a, a, a sense of who do I turn to, how can I share, how can I learn? Okay, so what's interesting for me is this flip, even this riff is, is a flip for any strategist in a small agency listening today that you know, comes back to what you were saying earlier at the beginning, Julian, about proving your value. Don't use those words. Have your own banned list of words that you will never use in any brand strategy or brief because then you're starting to provide a, a point of distinction. Hmm. So, oh, I was going to ask, ask you. Ask, you can I ask yeah, you, go on, Mark. Okay, let's reverse the wallow pit. What's the opposite of the wallow pit? If strategies currently the wallow pit. What's the opposite? I was getting trampoline, happy trampoline. Let's flip it. Rainbow pot. Oh, I like that. Rainbow trampoline. Yeah. Or what, what's at the what's at the end of a rainbow? Um, yes, yeah, I, I, I don't want to be that pot of gold, guys. That's gold. way too yeah. big a bar for me. So the flip side is, it's got to be something for me. The opposite of wallow will be some point of clarity and distinction. Okay, some vision focus okay so this is another exercise that i do there's a difference between uh, visual words and verbal words so verbal words are things that you can't picture in your head where visual words are things that you can visualize at the same time and we should always be reaching for visual words over verbal so the thing with the wallow pit that's so good is that you can imagine a pit 
And so what you've got to think is like, what's the word that's the opposite? So trampoline was good. Uh, I think rainbow pot was good because you can visualize a rainbow. So I'm looking at, um, what were the words you said there? Okay. Oh, go on then, Mark. I got one. I don't usually swear, John, but I'm, I'm thinking it's a fuck yeah cannon. So if, ah. if strategy is a wallow pit and you just dump your grievances and all your concerns, isn't it much better if it's like this cannon on the top of a hill and it's like just booming out fuck yeahs, like rainbow fuck yeahs. It's a rainbow fuck yeah cannon. There you go. Perfect. Lock it in. Yeah. Lock Done. it in, Eddie. And here's the thing. What you've done, you've immediately gone from this, Julian, what you were talking about, this soft wallow as a word okay I'm, I'm not the linguist but the even just saying it i start to roll my tongue and mm -hmm. sit back whereas in a fuck yeah cannon I'm, I'm all ramped up and hopefully not too angry but ready to go it's cool we got, we got those so, consonants in so listen i'm going to try and sway this back into the the loose theory of this pod today but this is all helpful why do you guys share so much for me it makes me a better strategist I think there's a theory in surgery uh, when they're teaching junior surgeons and it's called SIDUTU. Um, I'm not even going to say it. It's see it, do it, teach it. And that's how they learn and that's how they get better. And for me, I definitely have seen that. I think that the more I share, the sharper my strategy gets and me at my own craft. I, th I think that's that's the one of the number one reasons I share. and. I think that it also helps me, like it helps with my career and, you know, helping me get out there and, and helping with this consulting, at least, by having my name out there. Cool. Mark? Yeah, look, I mean, an evolutionary psychologist might say that we do these things for mating opportunities, resources, and to assert ourselves in hierarchy. Sharing triggers a whole bunch of dopamine in the brain. For me, I'd say... Going back to when I was very, very young, I've been publishing stuff on the internet since, I don't know, 1996 or so, I would say. It's probably a way for an introvert to try to find love. I know that that's a big part of why I, I write and I'm mature enough to realize that in myself right now. It's like how I deal with the world. I love words. I love playing with them. I love putting them out into uh, the public world. And it, it, I, I appreciate it when people read them. I mean, it, it's awesome. It excites me. Uh, and then at the same time, to Julian's point, I think writing, teaching and talking about what you do, they help you do it better, metacognition, uh, mm -hmm. let alone the communities, you know, coming up through the underground rap world. I met a lot of people through the Internet. And then when the social media scene kicked off uh, over 10 years ago, there was a great scene in Sydney and we would get together. We were like minded and we couldn't have found each other without the Internet. And we we've just always we just shared. It's what you did as a way to communicate with each other. You're communicating through ideas. Uh, sometimes it's personal. Usually it's probably not. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all the reasons. Mark and John, what would make you stop sharing? I haven't found it yet. And the reason why is because I think, I'm just thinking about what you guys were saying about why do we share? I mean, I'm a one third owner of an agency where one of our values when we started this agency was we, we believe um, our, one of our values is generosity because we believed two things. One is it's just the way that people should work. And the second thing is we've experienced more and more and more. And you've just you guys have just touched upon it about the it's a very anti agency culture historically to be generous. And so 
coming back to I will come back to your question Julian in order for me to stop I don't know if I can because I've never yet been in a an experience where over the long term being generous has not benefited me made me better or my agency or my team's work how about you Mark Oh, I don't want to wish this upon myself. I, to me, it would be like repeated violence. But it, even even then, I would find a way to share. It's it's how I'm wired. It's deep time spent in introspection and introversion, trying to write it down, and then I have to put it somewhere. Like I can't keep it in. If I keep it in, and I, I had a few years in the US when I first moved here, where I really turned myself off, and it's really not good for my mental health. And so I would keep doing it, but it would be repeated violence that might get me to slow it down for a bit <laughs> but the, the thing is now i feel like i got a pretty good gang around the world so i feel i feel relatively robust with that anyway I can ask a second question how do you get more people to share because right now there's like you know i'd say it's like five percent of people are sharing how do you get more people to share I think it's connected to what you guys have been doing and, and you guys know this but honestly it's really easy for me to say I've never yet been in a parlay when we've talked about learning and how we can all learn without your two names coming up. So kudos to you guys okay because it isn't just about the work and the point of view you have it's about how you facilitate why I'm trying to do parlay what I think more and more planners and strategists want to, to do which is to how do we share and learn from each other. I think it's from behavior Modeling behavior. You guys are doing it now. And if you think, you know, not three short blinks ago, not many people were sharing and giving away for free comms frameworks, templates, proof, testament to um, uh, uh, tips on how to be better at what you do. I feel as though what people lack, if anything now, that may help will be how do I contribute more? Does that make sense? How can I participate in sharing? Yeah, and I think part of that's a maturity thing where you hit a point in your career and you're like, oh, you know what? I don't know how many years I've got left in this and maybe that doesn't even matter, but I want to give something back. I want to contribute. I think that's important. The second is you know, the US and, in, and our, our industry especially does attract a lot of individualists and individualists are always trying to work out how to get ahead. And when I talk to students, it's the portfolio, it's the CV, everyone's fighting for that internship. So there's a lot of competition and a lot of pressure to be an important individual. And, and I think it's until you get a culture that is like, yeah, okay, you can, you can find that infinite nuance in yourself about how you're unique and incredible, but what have you done for the world lately? What have you contributed? And as soon as more of those conversations happen, I think more people will share. But I also don't think, I don't, I don't think it's an innate trait that humanity has. I think we share enough to survive and, and to get ahead. At the root of it, I know that it's an individualist thing as well. Like there is benefit for my career by sharing more. Like, and you know, it's helped me as a consultant. So at the end of the day, I think it does like, and through all my jobs, it's definitely helped me get a job. So it almost does have a very strong individual, like individualist, I don't know if that's the right way to use that word, like motivation. There is that underlying, like, if you do this, this will help you in your career, further your career at all levels, at all levels. My biggest barrier, I think it is, and this is what I think, but I don't know you, and you guys speak to it a lot more. You speak to a lot of planners too. But to me, it's like a fear, and this is what I get as well, a fear of being wrong. Because we're kind of doing this abstract job where we don't know what we're actually doing. So people are feared 
that people, other people, smarter people are going to call them out and call it like bullshit and that's not right. And that's the problem we really have to solve against. I think it's like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be called out for this. Yeah, people don't want to get judged and they don't want to lose opportunities because they put themselves out there. I think what's shifted in the past couple of years is not just the number of ways that people can share, but the industry is under pressure. And I feel there are enough people who've been around for a while now where they're like, you know what, it's not just us under pressure, it's all of us right now. So we can try to make all like this boat, all boats rise where possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been the shift. 10 years ago, it was probably more plentiful. 20 years ago, way more plentiful. And people would be like, eh, screw that, I'm not sharing my toys. So let me ask you, Steve, been working with so many different people over the last few years both of you i have found the best sharers in my experience have been either the incredibly senior very big agency leaders or small agency planners or strategists have you seen something different who shares best i actually don't see it as a level thing i see it as maybe a confidence thing people who have kind of grown up confident because to me I, I i don't see that many like leaders sharing like i don't you don't really hear the voices of the heads of many agencies like i know a lot of heads of agencies and i don't see them sharing it's like i think the people i see sharing are like i don't know the people who i see on like twitter and there's a lot of young people who are sharing like mary uh, Ergel and like marco on Twitter who did 30 insights for 30 days and he's sharing like that. And then there's Son of a Pitch, which is two young uh, junior strategists, Max and Vince in Australia. And they're not senior level and they're not at small agencies. It's just these people who I think have got the confidence of had a little, a little, you know, are willing to kind of jump over that barrier, that invisible barrier of fear of being judged. And then once they do it, I think then you're just rolling. You're like, oh my God, yes, this is great let's keep going but i don't know because mark there's there's plenty of people who share in sweathead who then don't share in other places who i'm like oh my god you've got an amazing voice i'd love to see more from you yeah it also de it depends on how we're judging the word share and does it have to be big spectacular and, and public because a lot of the leaders who do share they have pr teams around them shaping what they share and that's why the stuff doesn't get shared that much no offense pr people but it's like it doesn't usually come from a raw place right i think once you once you cross that threshold like i i have a need to express i have a deep need to express and if I'm, you know, waiting for one of my kids at ballet or soccer and I'm like, God, I just had an idea. I've got to put it somewhere. Now, maybe if I was smarter, I wouldn't put it out on the internet immediately. Maybe I would save it for, you know, maybe I'd have written 50 books by now or a movie or something, but I, I need to get it out. And I think that I hear that in people who are attracted to art and to, uh, and to self-expression, public self-expression. And that isn't everybody a lot of people have their needs met or they're playing a different game so uh i don't know i mean we we encourage it because we we love it and it's changed our lives and we're aware that there's bias when you talk about how you've done you've done okay because of the way you've behaved but then when we see people coming up embracing it as well it's really it's it's amazing and i'm like there's an electricity in people who try to share from a raw, hungry, desperate place. And uh, I don't know, look, I, I'm hmm. very attracted to it. And uh, I always try to encourage people to do it because you learn about who you are and what you can contribute to your career and to the rest of the world. Well, 
the past 45 minutes have been tons of sharing guys and i've loved it and of course attached to all these links are going to be where to find and share more because i really do appreciate the, the work you guys do and the, the the volume and the value and the quality in terms of the sharing you do i've seen it so often parting thoughts We've gone through, and there are a thousand and one tips. When we think about the this, the beginning of the story of this discussion around how can we help small agency strategists overcome this this need to to validate the what they do, we heard a lot from going straight from the very beginning about finding ways to prove your value, or finding thinking about your champion and what's the benefit to them, be that a creative person, account person. Um, I, I really enjoyed the wallow in the wallow pit. But the flip side to that, I think, was really interesting to me, which is there's just this ongoing, everyday role of a strategist of prove your value by don't fall in the wallow pit. Don't allow people in the wallow pit by thinking about clarity, that choice of words you talked about, Mark. Any other closing thoughts? Julian, closing thoughts for agencies, particularly small agency strategists on proving their value and demonstrating their value. Yeah, I think that strategists can fall into the wallow pit too easily themselves and be like, woe is me and oh, my agency doesn't respect strategists and this is bullshit, blah, blah, blah. I think we need to jump out of the wallow pit into the fuck yeah cannon. And the way you do that, in my honest opinion, the one thing you should do is start building that case study, that one presentation mm. that shows the power of strategy. And you can bring examples from external. You can show, hey, here's when strategy worked. For other agencies so get old strategy case studies but there's heaps i've got a paper on it with the 10 best case studies and show how strategy made that work better try to find them in your category and then the third one is try to find it working within the agency so whether you've been in the job for three months or 12 months or five years build that case study so you've got that and then start to shop that round um, I think the job of head of strate- a strategist in a small agency, it's as much about the politics game. 50% your craft, the other 50% is diplomacy skills. So get out there mm. with that deck, get coalitions, get people behind, have the backroom conversations to really start getting a lot of momentum. Get out of that wallow pit and start being diplomatic and, and working your agency and working the angles. Great tip. Mark? Well, I'd say that if you're going to stand behind your fuck yeah rainbow cannon, don't just shoot creative briefs and comms plans and all these smart strategy things. Shoot from the heart, create things, put them out into the world because you need to, because you want to, because that's how you start to explore and understand yourself. At some point, you're not going to have a strategy career. Who are you going to be then? And if you don't shoot other interesting, weird, wacky projects from that uh, fuck yeah rainbow cannon along the way, you might end your strategy career without even knowing it just ended. And you'll be like, oh God, who am I again? (laughs) Yep. Great closer. Julian, thank you for uh, making the time from from Melbourne. Mark, uh, absolute joy. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks, John. Take care.